Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me today, Dr. Ciela Hartnoff, a futurist, organizational psychologist, human behavior expert, writer, and thinker dedicated to reinventing work. And today's conversation is going to be about sensing and responding to uncertainty. This is such an important topic because most of us, especially as leaders and executives, we're taught to plan, predict, and control. And we live in a world where that skill set is insufficient to meet the needs. Welcome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here and to speak about something that I think is essential as we think about leadership moving forward. So I look forward to this conversation. Let's jump right into it. What does the science of mindset tell us and why is that important? So it's important for us to think about uncertainty in a couple of ways. And I think a lot about leadership in terms of the human capacity to lead. So what do we have as human beings? We have bodies, we have minds, we have emotions. So this is sort of our toolkit. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways to handle uncertainty using technology. We see that a lot, which are tools that we've built as human beings. But when we think about leadership, the most essential thing that we have is ourselves. To use this instrument, this human instrument, we start, I believe, with thinking about what is our mindset? What is our frame of reference? What is our relationship to uncertainty? And there's a couple ways to think about our relationship to uncertainty. The first is a biological relationship, which we know that biologically we are not friends with uncertainty. We have fight or flight. So how do we get over that? And part of how we get over that is reframing our relationship to uncertainty by using our mindset. Mindset research that's coming out now is really fascinating because it's showing that actually how we think what our mindset is about something actually changes our physiology. So by using our mindset, we're actually able to change some of our biology and hack this uncertainty disadvantage that we have biologically. So I'll share with you a little bit about what's coming out around mindset. But first, I want to talk about what mindset is and a little bit about what it isn't because mindset has been this term now that has been thrown around quite a bit. I, what I've noticed in the literature, especially around leadership, is that now everything is about a mindset versus a behavior. Mindset is that fundamental frame or belief system. It's an operating system that we hold that gets built over time all the way from childhood and then creates patterns of behavior that we demonstrate. Um, it's also deeply linked to our identity and how we see ourselves inside the world. And because of that, it actually is sometimes hard to change, but also um, essential because if we can change our mindset, we really have more utility around changing our behavior. So mindset is really this deep operating system within us. Some of the newer research around mindset, like I said, shows some of the, the ways that the mindsets that we hold impact our physiology. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the research that's coming out of Stanford. So there's a really exceptional researcher there named Leah Crum, and she has done some research about different things like stress, which I think is important for us to acknowledge and talk about now and some of this physiology piece. So one of the most interesting research studies that I have seen come out from her is she did this study where she had two different groups. She gave them the exact same milkshake. She told one group that the milkshake was low calorie, there was scarcity with it, and so you weren't getting really the full thing. So you were getting sort of a 
a slim fast milkshake, if you will. So she told one one group that they were getting this. She told the other group that they were getting this super indulgent milkshake that had like 600 calories. And she just sort of talked about how all the indulgent factors were about it. In reality, it was the same milkshake. It was 320 calories or something. So one was like saying it's 120 calories. The other one was 600. It was the same exact milkshake. What she found in the two groups is that the one that felt like they were receiving something less than, that was you know, the slim fast milkshake, they actually had less of a satiated response in their what's called ghrelin, which is a hormone that basically says your, your body is satisfied. So because they felt like they were receiving something that was not as satisfying, their hormonal response said, yeah, you are not as satisfied and you probably want more. The response in the the indulgent group was the exact opposite. So the ghrelin kicked right in and said, okay, you're completely satisfied and you're fine. You don't need any more. So what this tells us about mindset is the way we frame and the way we understand something actually has a direct response on ghrelin. But what we've also noticed is it has direct response on other hormones like cortisol, which is the stress hormone and other things. So why does this matter? This matters because if we think about leadership and uncertainty, if our frame of reference towards uncertainty is that it's scary, well, then what's going to happen biologically to us is that we're going to have the responses that tell us it's scary. So what I work with on leaders is the fundamental starting point is to think about what is your relationship to change? What is your mindset towards change? Where does that come from? Have you had experiences through life that tell you that change is scary, that uncertainty is scary? And how do you work to reframe that so that not only can your behavior be different, but fundamentally you're shifting the patterning in your brain so that over time your response towards change becomes more accepting and more exciting, frankly? That's fascinating. As you say this, I think about how I have changed how I frame. Now, this research will change it again but change how I frame conversations and even launching people into change. Mm-hmm. We're building on your exceptional work rather than, yeah, that's in the past. Now we got to go make things different. But starting from a position of strength and respect for the person and the work they've done feels like it also is coming from that place of abundance or indulgence rather than suggesting that someone is inadequate to the task. Yes, I think it's really about this possibility frame. And what we know is so true about uncertainty and change is that you have to try a lot of things. So, of course, there's certainly failure that's going to happen along the way when we're dealing with uncertainty. So the way you frame that and the narrative that you use around it is essential. So you think about it more as creating the pathway to finding the right solution versus that's being wrong and we're on the wrong path. And that research actually is around growth versus fixed mindset. So there's a whole bunch of research that Carol Dweck that many people know, so I don't really probably need to go into it. Mm -hmm. But our relationship towards failure and whether or not we're making progress also really matters in times of uncertainty. And the narrative, if we take this to the leadership level, the narrative that the leader is creating around failure, around progress, around uncertainty gets absorbed and creates a collective mindset around how do we handle uncertainty around here? And that, of course, creates the culture, and that has the downstream impact around whether a culture and a group, a collective, can accept uncertainty and use it as possibility, or if it becomes this fearful place where there's repercussions. 
We talk about the leader needing to shift from the traditional leadership mindset, and we use the term algorithm, to that of the scientist. So kind of a picture of Gibbs from NCIS and my favorite character, Albert Einstein. Now I want to do Forrest Gump, <laughs> the image of him trying all the chocolates. Yeah. As you were saying, we have to experiment with things. It must be because I'm hungry. But as we're having this conversation, I was just imagining I would love to experiment in a chocolate store. Not so much at work, but in a chocolate store, I would love to just test everything and see what is my favorite. We don't take that chocolate store mentality to work no. and say, I want to go do a bunch of experiments. It's how do I get through this so I can get the work done rather than how do I enjoy all the chocolates in front of me? I don't know anyone who looks at work that way. That's also this collective mindset that comes straight out of the industrial era which has to do with outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we collectively inside this idea of work understand it as outcome generation versus an efficiency versus effectiveness, experimentation, innovation, and creating slack in the system so that you can have that. So the thing about the industrial revolution, of course, is that you were trying to move the slack out of the system to create efficiency. Unfortunately, we need to rethink that and think about organizations more as organic systems that need to have more slack inside of it, need different ways to nurture it. And I think about really about organizations much more like a forest grove where there's this network of root systems underneath and they're all nurturing one another and growing in different ways to grow and thrive and nourish. And when when something happens, there's like a disaster the ecosystem is able to course correct itself. But the reason why it can course correct itself is because it has all these different elements that are holding it. And we've stripped out a lot of these different elements. And where we saw that most clearly during COVID was obviously the supply chain. So we start stripping out inside the supply chain to make more efficiency and we don't hold things in warehouses. And there's a reason for that. I understand that. But that also has a real consequence when we're dealing with emergent conditions and uncertainty. So what I start thinking about is how do we put more slack back into a system so that people feel like they can have more space to create some mistakes. And slack is things like budgets. Slack is things like hiring. And do we have enough people? And one of the concerns I have right now is we're entering sort of an economic challenging environment, and in particular in the tech industry where there's some course correction happening around hiring. If we get too lean, then there is no possibility to create more tolerance for uncertainty because everyone's working on a shoestring, and then that leads to burnout. And burnout is the enemy, of course, of creativity and progress in uncertainty. You know, as you say that, I think of even meeting duration, that I have tried to move to a 45-minute meeting or a 50-minute meeting to give 10 minutes to do simple things like refill my coffee. And yet it is culturally normal to spend 60 minutes in a meeting, whether we need it or not. That little bit of slack allows me to enter each meeting fresher thinking than if I did what I typically do, which is two minutes late, getting in the middle of the meeting to get up and get a cup of coffee and, and not being able to fully attend. Or I think what you're also talking about is brain functioning and being present. Yeah, I'm not fully present because I'm, especially at the end of the meeting, trying to figure out how to exit, re-enter the next one. I'm processing, do I have what I need for the next thing? 
and the sensing part is not happening. No, it can't. It just it just can't. You have to have space for that. And one thing I'll, I'll sort of throw out is there's an opposite perspective on that, which is you should have less meetings, but they should be longer and they should be more spacious so that you actually have the slack inside the meeting and inside the conversation. So that's another idea is to think about where do I get rid of meetings that are not essential and where can I put in more space in meetings that perhaps have more generative quality? So that's one way to also consider thinking about meetings a little bit differently. The other thing I'll mention is some work by Kel Newport, a book that's called Deep Work. And I think it's an essential Bible as we're transitioning towards trying to think about work differently and handling uncertainty and creating more progress. Uncertainty is loaded with possibility. That's the flip side of uncertainty. It's loaded with possibility. But to leverage that requires us to be in a different mindset, a different frame. So in deep work, there's a conversation about how you get this slack, this space in your brain, and you create an environment to be able to do that. And he references Young as an example of someone who has pioneered, I guess you could say, this idea of deep work way back when. His example is that Young, he created this cottage in the forest, and he would go out to this cottage in the forest and be alone to think, to do what Newport calls deep work. And then he would come back into the city, and he would see his clients, and he'd be with his family, and he would do all those things that were essential. But because he had this space where he could go and be extracted from his day-to-day work, from his day-to-day meetings, that was credited as why he was able to come up with the theory that really broke the dominance of Freud. Without that space, that deep work, his ideas probably would have never come to fruition because he wouldn't have had the spaciousness that was required to leverage possibility. When we're thinking about our own lives It's up to us to take some agency back to figure out how do we create our own deep work. And that starts with the modeling of leaders. I really encourage leaders to think about how are they taking their own agency to create deep work so that they can create these reframes for themselves around their own mindset, around find generative possibility, and set the tone for their organization to do the same. I'm aware of a conversation we had recently connecting the work of the conscious capitalism folks Mm -hmm. really around as leaders becoming more conscious and what does that mean? And I think there is very much a direct tie. It's not 10 minutes between meetings. It's days away to center, ground, rebalance, come into relationship with ourselves as the leader doing the leading. That was how you started, right? We are the vessel delivering the leadership. Yes. If we are out of kilter in any way, the organization amplifies that as it ripples through the organization. So our consciousness, centeredness, presence, all of whatever words we use are foundational Mm -hmm. to doing high impact work. Like you talked about Carl Jung and changing the trajectory of the field of psychotherapy. Yes. I think that's essential. And that's also part of why we start with the work around mindset, because mindset can evolve to become more conscious. And we can also learn to hold more perspectives, more mindsets. And as we do that, we're what's called in psychology, transcending and including. And what that gets us is the ability to think in shades of gray. 
And when we can think in shades of gray, we can hold much more of the complexities of the modern work life, but frankly, just modern life. As we think about our own vessel, that's essential. It sounds like you're pointing to vertical leadership yeah. or vertical development. Vertical development is an essential component of this. I think it's more than that, though, as well. I think there's a lot of things that are helpful anchors for us to think about in terms of human development, and vertical development is absolutely essential. Mindset is a different type of research that relates that I think we also need to be paying attention to, which has to do much more with sort of the human biological frame and how we make patterns, which is also essential. So what I'm advocating for is us to take really a multidisciplinary lens across all this different research to say, what does this really tell us about the human experience inside work now? And then how do we integrate those together to think about leadership in a new and holistic way? Your work and ours is so aligned because we talk about leadership as personality type. We all have pre-orientations we come in with, vertical development that we call perspectives, mindsets resilience, and then behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the behavior is a result of all of these. That's right. It's not the starting point. It's the outcome. Absolutely. And that's where we've gotten leadership development wrong, is that we've consistently come in at the behavior, which is the outcome. So we're trying to tweak at the edges and we give a negotiation course or something along those lines with tools and tactics. But the reality is, is you need to back into it to understand why are you afraid? <laughs> why are you afraid of negotiating? <laughs> like what's happening here on the inside? And this is what, you know, in Anderson and Adams, they're both Bobs, they talk about inner work and outer work. So the inner work is the frame that we have to move from first to get to the outer work, which is absolutely essential, but we know a lot about outer work. We know a lot about strategy planning and how leadership needs to look sort of on the outside in the organization. However, when we're working in a complex environment, we also need to start looking at this inner terrain. And I'm pleased to see that even organizations like BetterUp are starting to use some of this terminology around inner work as an essential component in the leadership process. I am as well. Most of the people who we have come to a leadership class, if they don't know our work, come in looking for the checklist. Yeah. Just tell me what to do and how to do it and I'll comply. Versus if we look at a fabulous singer or athlete, it is through themselves that they deliver the performance. It's not through a checklist. Tiger Woods my assumption is he worked very hard on being present and the practice and the coaching and all of that work that goes with being conscious, translating to then doing well at swinging and the tactics of golfing. Yeah. It's funny you bring up Tiger Woods because I also have mostly known him from the tabloids, except for recently, there was an article about him maybe a couple months ago that I read about his dedication and his drive. Not so much when he was younger, where he really employed this idea of deliberate practice, which is where the 10,000 hours from Malcolm Gladwell comes from, and this idea that you need to practice, 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 which is absolutely true. You need to do the thing so that you can become good at it. But more recently, this article talked about how he was having to work much more with his being because he was going through so many challenges personally, but also in it was impacting his golf. So to create a reinvention for himself, he had to go inside. Mm. And it wasn't just about the deliberate practice. It was about 
what was inside. So when we reach failure points, it's not just about trying to do more of the same action and the same practice. It's what's happening inside me so that I know how I can expand my consciousness or my inner body. And COVID was a good example of a collective failure point Yeah, that no matter how hard people practiced, now that sensing muscle becomes required. Yeah. Because there is no predicting and controlling a pandemic or the Suez Canal getting blocked by barges or any number of things that are happening now. No, there is none. Are outside of our scenario planning. Right. So it's a new skill set that needs to be added alongside. I'm not saying that we need to throw out all of these planning mechanisms that we've learned so well, but it's like you know, that old saying, using a hammer for everything, not everything's a nail. When we're dealing with complex scenarios and uncertainty, it's a whole different tool set. And it's what I call the sensitive leadership, which is the ability to sense and respond to novel terrain. When we learn how to sense and respond by first building this conscious capacity inside of us to hold that uncertainty and we tune in to ourselves and then we tune into others. We tune into the context around us and that gives us more capacity to respond in unique and novel ways. But that also starts from the beginning place, which is our ourselves. And I'm writing a book right now. And what I talk about around creating more perception or attunement are three things, which is we have bodies, which give us a lot of information. We have emotions, which we're learning much more about the science of emotion that tells us it's essential in decision-making. If you don't have emotions, you can't make any decisions. It's also essential in connecting to others and building compassion and um, connectivity. And then we have body, motion, and brain. And the brain part we've talked quite a bit about around our mindset and our patterning. We've also know, of course, from the brain science, that neuroplasticity, we can change our brains even into adulthood. So we start with the context of our own selves, of attuning and getting more conscious about our own human experience, but that's not enough. Then we need to start learning how to attune to others. And then the leadership domain, this is really essential. And this goes beyond what I consider empathy, which I know is a hot topic right now. I have some different views on empathy because I think empathy can really create burnout for everyone because as you're feeling other people's feelings, we sort of bring each other all to our knees. I think compassion is a better answer and how we become compassionate. But compassion requires us to have our own stable ground first, and then we can be compassionate, but we don't need to fix the other person's emotional terrain. So this is where I think leadership probably needs to go when we talk about attuning to other people. And then the third essential component of sensitive leadership is attuning to the environment. And attuning to the environment is also a different skill set that requires something that's called sense-making, which is the way that we understand and make sense through a process, and I sort of delineate this in my book, that you start questioning differently, you're asking different questions, you're looking for early signals, you're really becoming much more of a futurist, if you will, using some of the tools that are less scenario planning and more about looking wider to see what's happening in the environment and then piecing together a picture of what might occur. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I understand scenario planning. Yeah. And that's looking at what might occur and what's not highly probable, black swan kind of scenarios. Yeah. It sounds like the process is different. The process is different because scenario planning is 
important. It's sort of looking against the different contexts. Sense-making is what you do when you're actually inside the emergent territory. So what I think about scenario planning is you're sort of saying, okay, these things might happen. What would we do in that case? Sense-making is saying, oh, COVID is happening. <laughs> We're inside the emergent terrain. Now what? We're sitting inside this uncertainty, this emergence. Now what? So that gives us the chance to work inside emergence when it's actually happening. Got it. And what I see with scenario planning is that we're trying to predict what might happen versus building the tools to be inside when it's actually really happening. So sense making sort of this ongoing process that you use inside uncertain terrain. Which is every day for most of us now. Yes, exactly. So which is why scenario planning is still interesting to me, but I think it's kind of interesting because it's the same thing that we've always been doing, which is trying to predict an uncertain future versus just recognizing we're in an uncertain future. So what are the tools and capacities that we need to be using right this minute? And that has to do with first looking at these signals, collecting, asking yourself, what is going on here? It's as simple as that. What is going on here? What do I not see? Who else do I need to bring into this conversation to help me see differently, wider? And then it's really a collective process so that we're all coming together to have a conversation about, hmm, what do you see? What do I see? How does this create shades of what is potentially happening here? And then how do we make sense of this together? And then, of course, the last question is, given that, what can we do next? What is a potential move for us inside this organization? And maybe it'll fail, or what are the few things that we can try and do? But this also becomes sort of a cyclical process when we're working in really hard terrain that's always changing. Meetings could always be this conversation continuously so that we're really doing the definition of adapting over time by continuously having these kinds of conversations inside meetings versus what is our strategy for the next year. It's not that that's not important. It's just that that doesn't meet the need of an uncertain terrain. It has a different feel when you say that. Mm. Part of what I've done over years is hiking, climbing Kilimanjaro, that kind of hiking. Wow. Uncertain terrain, even though our guide may have walked that path a thousand times, mm -hmm. it's uncertain in that the weather's different and the people walking on that journey are so different. That's right. So our group was not a group of professional hikers. We were physicians and consultants. No matter how much we trained, we were not equipped the way the Navy SEALs would be equipped to go do that journey. So while the physical terrain may not have changed, the ecosystem changed. Yeah. The really good guide, and we had a really good guide, was continually monitoring, okay, that one's struggling, that one's doing okay, you peel off there and go with that one, those two can partner up, and that one's going to go back to the tent. That choreography, in essence, happened minute by minute. Yeah, that's a beautiful example of attuning and paying attention. It reminds me of the you know, the map is not the territory. Yeah. And starting to collapse the idea that if you have a map, then you understand the terrain. Well, you can have a map of what might happen in your organization for the next three years or a hope or a vision or a view, except for when you're inside the territory, <laughs> which is uncertain, that needs to be one frame 
And then you're inside the territory and then you're attuning and you're adjusting as you're describing the guides doing. So you need both inside an organization, but where we're more skilled, of course, is creating a map and then hoping that the terrain is in some way stable, but the terrain is never stable. And the humans in the terrain are definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Consistently <laughs> delivering as we would have quote, yeah. designed the system because they're humans. Yeah. Humans. I mean, humans are the definition of complexity. If you throw humans into a situation, there are certain things that we can predict about human behavior. And, you know, there's argument in psychology about how much that is, but of course, there's some unpredictability about what will emerge because we all have different profiles of our mindsets of what's coming to the table. Frankly, what our fears and traumas are, all of that informs how we show up into the terrain. You know, it's fascinating working with a new client leadership group, all of them highly skilled and all of them wanting the right positive outcome for the organization, but their dynamics are not great together. So even though the system was designed well and every individual human is brilliant in their own right, the collective chemistry isn't working. And so again, the terrain, the map may be fabulous and everyone's wearing the right shoes to go hiking. Nobody's shown up in slippers or something. Still, the chemistry really matters. It does matter. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I've been thinking a lot about this idea of, of group and team dynamics lately, because if we're thinking about sensing and responding and the different things that we need out of leadership, and I'm starting to believe that what we need to do as a collective and leadership teams need to change because it can't simply just be about providing clarity or enough psychological safety. While those things likely matter, I think if we're really talking about the human instrument and being able to become more conscious, then we need to think about at a group level, how do we create more consciousness at the group level versus just putting in more tactical elements of structure and clarity and all the things we traditionally understand about group process. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about that because this is an emerging thinking that I'm having that I don't have an answer for quite yet, but I think something's going to need to shift there. I agree. And one of the things that's really striking me is back to our industrial era structures, we put job descriptions and legal contracts and all those things. Then I think of human systems and the idea that I will respond differently if I have a shared commitment to somebody than I will, I'm getting a paycheck and I've got a job description that says I show up and do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Our producers on the screen right now, Dan, I have a commitment to Dan and Dan has a commitment to me and to the company. It's a professional commitment. Don't confuse that. <laughs> but <laughs> as humans to each other's positive outcomes, creating a brilliant working environment and impacting our clients collectively, that's a very different and very emotional commitment yeah. that isn't always present in a workplace. And I think both of us would, seems trite, but we would go well above and beyond for one another mm -hmm. where it mattered. I don't think that chemistry around shared mutual purpose is always present. Yeah. And felt. And felt. I think that's a really essential component is and felt. 
So we talk about things like employee engagement, and yet where's the felt sense inside of that? I mean, really what we're we're getting towards is emotional engagement. How do you feel emotionally connected and cared for? And I have an interesting relationship with this idea because I also think people should have agency around whether they want to have emotional engagement and attachment to this idea of work. I think that should be a choice. And if an organization is expecting that, that should be named. And then you can decide, do I want that? Do I not want that? Where I think we've sort of gotten it wrong inside human resources is that we've started to demand, you know, you must have emotional engagement. You must be engaged in a certain way versus offering a choice. I'm more and more thinking as we're thinking about more flexibility and personalization at work, we need to also start offering other choices. How much do you want work to be a way to make a living? How much do you want work to be a life's purpose? What is your definition of work and how do you get to decide that for yourself versus an organization deciding it for you? I think it's a really important distinction and agency, the upper out culture that presumes that everyone's committed versus stable organizations often have people for whom they are dedicated to doing a good job, but they don't necessarily want to get promoted and they don't necessarily derive a key part of their identity from their work. And yet for the organization, they can be crucial to its effective functioning. Yes. And we don't talk about that very much. Yeah. You know, we coach leaders to say, you know, what do you want to be here? What do you want to do here? Versus coaching leaders to say, what is your relationship to work? I think that's the new question leaders need to be asking. What is your relationship to this idea of work now that is shifting and changing? What do you want work to look like and be for you? How can I support you? And does that match with the organization that you're in? Is there a shared agreement that it's necessary for this team to come together and have that shared chemistry? Is that essential and crucial for the organization's outcomes? And if it is, then naming that and letting these leaders decide, am I going to participate in that or not? Of course, there's consequences for that choice, but at least you're giving choice. We start our leadership classes with vision and values, and it's life vision, not work vision, Mm -hmm. and then values. And if my values, if my number one value is family, then the position work takes in the ranking of where I invest my time may be different than someone for whom work is really foundational to their entire identity. And it changes over your life. Oh, yeah. If you're a new mother, caring for your child likely takes a lot more energy than an empty nester. Yeah. At least we hope. (laughs) And that's not a value judgment. That's a physiological. Yeah. Caring for children takes time. Interestingly, because as you say this, I expect from our leadership team, or maybe I've selected people for whom we have a mutual commitment Mm -hmm. and people who don't have that shared commitment haven't stayed. And that probably means it's strong and it's a culture. I think what we need to just think about is what assumptions are we making here that are not made explicit? And we talk about this, of course, a lot in culture, is that culture is happening all of the time around us. And where culture can become more powerful is when we start to articulate it and start to make it from implicit to explicit. And then you can really work with 
organizational culture. But as long as it's just happening around us and we're not making sense of it, then it has us versus us being able to be in control of it. The one thing we just talked about was the agency of selecting how important the organization is in the individual's life. What other areas are you thinking about these days that should be made explicit? At work or, or, or in life. Whichever you want to share. Well, I think this actually goes full circle to our notion about mindset. Some of the research I've done about mindset is that the first way for us to get a sense of our mindset is to start looking at our assumptions. And so if I think about mindset, what I often say is let's try to start making our assumptions explicit so we can understand what we're working from and where our starting place is. So if I think about just on the individual level, what someone can do to, to start working with mindset, but also working with themselves and creating more agency for themselves is to start looking at your assumptions and naming those assumptions. And if you get really brave, bringing those assumptions out with your team and with other people to say, here's the assumptions that I'm making so that other people can start naming their assumptions too. The assumptions are where we often get caught because it's a, this the difference between the way I see the world and the way you see the world and probably what we want out of this world or this work or this relationship. That's more on the personal level. Can you give a couple examples? Because I think we get caught by our assumptions that they're unconscious enough. We don't even know we're making assumptions. That is true. And that's why I think we often need other people to help us. This is why self-awareness is not just navel-gazing activity. <laughs> it's also having other people in relationship to us. A good example or a simple example, I don't know if it's a good example, but a simple example is when I do mindset workshops, when we do them in person, we have people come in and I ask people, what assumption are you making about the person next to you right now? And usually we have a narrative going on about this person next to us. And then I also say, what assumption are you making about coming into this workshop, this room? And these are usually things people can name mm -hmm. if you start to think about it. Oh, I walked in this room and I thought this is going to be a load of BS and I don't really want to be here. And then I say, okay, well, then what behavior is that going to produce in you? It's going to produce resistance. You're going to be like, prove it to me. How's your attitude going to be shaped? Okay. What if you had the opposite? What if your assumption coming in here was, I'm going to learn something new and at least I'll get one valuable takeaway. Okay, if that was your assumption coming in, what is your behavior going to be? How are you going to respond to what's in front of you? So I start with something that is more simple and able to access. And then if you're really going deeper into the mindset, then we do pairing and coaching. Here's what I see in you. Here's what I've noticed about what I think assumptions you're making by what I hear you say. Just a noticing exercise, and it may or may not be true, but at least it gives a reflection pattern so that people can start thinking about, gosh, okay, if that's what it sounds like, is that an assumption that I'm holding? So this is just work that happens over time as you're reflecting, as you're noticing, as you're inviting other people to notice with you, and then you start getting more attuned and more equipped to notice your assumptions. I really like that because as you said, they're unconscious and powerful. They really do drive how we interact with one another, one-on-one, -on -one, the collective, and the mission of the organization. 
do I assume that we're doing valuable, important work? Or do I assume I'm really here because I need this job to feed my kids and the owners are sleazy, but I still have to have the job. That drives very different behavior. Absolutely. And when I came on, you asked me about one of my favorite podcasts. And I said The Gathering Room from Martha Beck. And her most recent one was really about the assumptions we make. And she was talking about the assumptions we make, in particular about financials. And if we assume that we are always destitute or we're always broke, then that actually creates a process of that potentially being true because our frame of reference is that this is true. Versus the other, which is I'm not going to worry about that necessarily. It will come. I will figure it out. I'm capable. You can see that the frame or the narrative we're telling ourselves, it can produce very different outcomes out in the material world too, sure, but also in our own experience of am I going to be okay versus am I always going to feel like I'm crunched? Which is interesting also as we relate it to time because many of us feel always time crunched. Yeah. I have the same amount of time you do as everyone else listening does, hours in the day, and yet some of us feel very crunched, and others who have a similar level of responsibility aren't running around hair on fire. Right. I don't want to deny the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of externals that impact us, and we can take back our own agency by working with our psychology to think about, what is the best use of my time? Why won't I give up some of these meetings? Why won't I say no? And then you start taking back your agency to say, okay, I can find ways where my locus of control lives so that I can feel good inside this environment. Just like the money thing, it doesn't mean I'm going to get more money. It means I'm going to make peace with where I am financially and use it as efficiently or effectively as possible. Yeah, and potentially generate more We hope generate more. We hope. Well, but time, time is limited. (laughs) Yeah. You cannot generate more time. Money, that's a different thing. (laughs) But that's a perspective on on abundance versus scarcity, which is also a mindset too. And a really powerful one because an abundance mindset, I know some of these can be taken to the extreme, the mindset that isn't connected to action versus the mindset that really retunes the instrument and we behave differently. Yeah. This is not about magical thinking. I want to be clear. It's about using your mindset, your frame of reference to create new behavior patterns, to give yourself more potential and possibility to get back to your center of control and your center of gravity. So that's what this work is about. Which is an important body of work. As you've said, it's research-based, Yes, it's evidence-based, and there are processes. There's ways to do this. Absolutely. We just need to learn them and make them primary in our thinking about leadership. Because right now we're at this inflection point between sort of the old and the new. And what I would also say about that is it's almost becoming more to me like a Venn diagram. What do we need from the old way and what do we need inside a new way? So you don't have to shed everything from the past. There's this idea that we need to transform and create a new way and Maybe not completely necessarily. Maybe with some of the tools and practices that we've learned along the way are valuable. They need to be right-sized in the context of the current environment and then revisited. So maybe some things over time will need to be shed. But where we get caught is not analyzing and looking at that to say, do these really work for me anymore? And it's, of course, goes way back to what got you here won't get you there. The book from ages ago about 
re-examining what are the tools that I have in my toolkit as a leader and which ones are still useful and which ones are no longer serving me. And I think that's a really important point because we can't transform 100%. So we need some core functions. Everyone I know that I've coached, nobody's completely broken or nobody is in a situation where they need to be 100% different. We all have gifts that we're drawing from because we're now in a new situation, things we need to, of course, develop. I like to think of it more as renewal Mm. rather than sort of reinvention. And it goes back to what I talked about around the forests and ecosystems. They're always renewing themselves to the next level of how they need to be inside the context. And we look at climate change and you see this renewing and this regeneration happening in a lot of different ways. Of course, there's devastation that's happening alongside it too. We live in a world of paradoxes and this is true. And yet when we think about our own human instrument, A lot of what I have researched and what I talk about is it's not that this idea of our mindset, our psychology, our frames, that has been evergreen inside the human condition. It's just we need to renew our relationship with it, renew our understanding, and renew our working with it because a lot of this has just been ostracized from the working environment, like we talked about, because of the Industrial Revolution. So now... We're re-revolutionizing work. We need to bring these parts of our humanity back inside and renew them. And I think it helps us come from a place of strength versus a place of deficit. You use the term humane workplace, humane-driven future of the workplace. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I like the word humane because I think it does two things for me. It means bringing our humanity, our humanness, using this tool that we have. It's the only thing we have. We can augment ourselves through artificial intelligence, through other technologies. And yet, what we must come back to is that we are still human and we need to work with our humanity. So that's part of the piece of this is bringing back our humanity versus trying to strip it out, trying to make us into you know little bots and robots. And we're full. We have lots of range. We have a lot of capacity. We need to bring that back in. The other part about this to me about humane driven is how we think about the systems and structures and where we strip human dignity out of the workplace. And that is a bigger conversation where we need to start addressing things like what does making shareholder value primary do? What does that do to workers? Where are other models for thinking about how we establish what organizational value to the world, to the community looks like? An exceptional example of someone who, of course, is pioneering this is the most recent with the Patagonia founders saying we are giving our company profits to the climate. That's what this organization is going to do. It's going to help try to solve climate change. And I don't know if you've read the article, maybe we can link it in the show notes, where they collectively decided as a family, they weren't going to make themselves public. Instead, what they were going to do was use the profits for this new way of creating a, a fund that would fund climate activism. Now, of course, you can make criticisms about, is this going to work, how this is going to work? Yes, of course. And yet it's a new way of thinking. What does a humane workplace generate? What possibilities can it create if we think differently about what organizations and work is meant to do? So that's one of Forrest Gump's chocolates. Exactly. For some people, it's going to be a dark chocolate. For some people, it's going to be a light chocolate. For Patagonia, this experiment is a valuable experiment that all other scientists learn from. 
Absolutely. And I think if we think about scientists, I mean, it's about discovery, which is the exciting part. I don't use the term scientist. I use the term wayfinder, which maybe is a bit similar because it's about discovery. And what can we discover here? And I like what you're saying as well around there can be multiple shades of how this shows up. And I think that's what we're really seeing with different ways that people are approaching work right now is this idea about flexibility is simply about shades, about choices around what's possible for me to create now in my life. Maybe I want something different later. And then organizations, I think, should also have this chance to shape what they want their organizations to contribute to and what does it mean to them to be a humane organization so that we have more choices and that maybe the capitalist model doesn't allow for right now. There is a move to move away from shareholder toward a broader stakeholder capitalism. And I also read not too long ago in the Wall Street Journal, there is big criticism of that. Yeah. So there are certainly tensions about capitalism is in fact about capital. And the stakeholder thing is not as designed. And yet there are other significant people like Jamie Dimon who are saying, absolutely, we need to consider the broader stakeholders because that's what will make our organizations healthy and whole. Absolutely. And I think you can expect that in times of transition, we are going to be in these types of conversations because there will absolutely be tensions inside of this. And I think that's also goes back, if we go back just to the individual leader who's leading inside an organization, they have to be able to hold these tensions inside themselves because they're sort of at the epicenter of these different types of conversations. No longer is this just an intellectual or theorized thing that's happening outside. Employees are bringing it into the organization, into the conversation. And so leaders need to be equipped to hold these sorts of paradoxes in new ways and be in conversation, even if they don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I'm sure no one knows the answer yet. There is no answer. But at least we can be in conversation together about it and make sense. And that's what sense making really is, the value of it. As you say that, I think of the uncertainty in our world means we can have experiments with pure, we're all about making money. We can have experiments about Patagonia. We can have someplace in the middle, which one will thrive or what is the environment in which all thrive. And employees who resonate more with Patagonia are going to choose to work at Patagonia. Employees who resonate more with a more pure capital-driven model will resonate with those companies and they'll work there. We'll see who thrives. And all of them may thrive, but there will be a sorting, just like there's a sorting of employees, some who want to work remotely, some who want to be back in the office and are willing to make that investment and others who will be hybrid will have a great sorting at some point. And over time, people will end up where they fit and we'll see who thrives. We will. Or if all do. Or if all do. I mean, all of these things are muddy as we're going through paradigm shifts. It's muddy waters and we just have to keep going through and muddling our way through. One thing I will say about big change, though, is that in systems theory, the system is, of course, always trying to get back to equilibrium. In this case, what will likely thrive in the short run is what is already established, <laughs> which is why organizations are saying, please just come back to the office. Not all of them, but can you please come back to the office? Because I know how to do that. And so it's just the system trying to get us back to some sort of status quo. And we have to create enough pushback 
where there can be enough space between the status quo and the new so that we can have different options. Otherwise, we will collapse back to what is considered normal now. That is one of the biggest benefits of COVID around how long it lasted is that you got enough space between status quo and the new that it's actually a lot more difficult to come back to status quo. So we have to think about systems in this way so that we can get enough space in between the old and and what's possible. Yeah, because we saw that people could work remotely. Yeah. And it was successful. But if it would have been one year, it would have snapped right back. Yeah, we're now seeing some employees say, I'm not going back. Yeah. They're voting to align with organizations that allow 100% remote. Others are willing to align with 100% in person. Yeah. And that's also then becomes an organization's choice around, okay, where is your talent? What concessions are you needing to make as well? So the organization power has shifted. Employees who are sought after have more authority and autonomy. It's not even, but nothing in society is even. But this in particular isn't even. But I have a recruiter who often sends stuff to me to send out to other people or And she sent me a job recently and said, this has to be in a certain city. And I wrote back and I said, before I send this to anyone, is it hybrid or is it in the office every day? I wanted to clarify. And she said, in the office every day. And I said, I have no one to send this to because no one I know is willing to do that. But that's the choice the organization's making. I'm certain they will find someone. It's in a nice location. It's a lovely place to live. But it definitely is a choice they're making. And the, the pool of who they can hire will reflect that. As we're coming to wrap up, is there anything you absolutely want our listeners to hear that we haven't talked about already? I think what's just essential in this moment is to realize that it's really not about trying harder. And this is the cultural meme that we have. If we just strive harder, if we just try harder, we're going to get through this. That is the essential reframe that we need to make right now is that it's really not about trying harder. It's about renewing ourselves so that we have more capacity. And that is a a different way of thinking about it so that we're not pushing ourselves to burnout. My biggest concern right now about work life is burnout. And that's because we're using the old model of work harder, work faster, work smarter, rather than saying, you know, I actually need to work differently. I need to think about more about deep work. I need to take back my agency. I need to have rest. I need to find my locus of control. So when you start asking yourself these questions, what that does is put yourself back in the driver's seat so that you won't always feel like you're burnt out and that you're always in response to the system in the organization. So this is the deep work and the consciousness that I, as the human doing the leading, have to be refreshed. And there is such a pull to do more. I imagine you feel it, I feel it. And yet that leaves us less effective. It leaves us completely less effective. And I have to say, Maureen, it's funny in these conversations, I don't operate that way anymore. You don't? Mm -mm, I don't. Ever since I've left corporate, I don't operate that way anymore. But I had three months of working with myself, with other people to think about how do I create spaciousness in my life and do the work that matters in a way that uplifts me. And I spent three months in that conversation with myself and with other people to figure out a way to architect this new work journey that I'm on. 
And so every time I'm in conversations now with clients and I see them on the other side of the screen in panic and burnout, and I think that used to be me. It's so clear to me that to create these humane driven workplaces, we have to go back to ourselves and find a way to hold ourselves differently with more care versus trying to push ourselves to fit into a system that is really at its breaking point. And you had the luxury of exiting a corporation to allow that to happen. That's a luxury. And I completely recognize that. So where can leaders find that small bit of solace? And it's possible. I'm not saying it's easy. And for me, I was definitely pushed to a point where I was so burnt out that I needed to make new choices. And I recommend let's try not to get to that point. Let's start doing it before. Beautiful guidance. Thank you, Dr. Ciela Hartanov. When is your book coming out and what's the title? It'll be out later next year. I don't have a pub date quite yet, and it's called Reclaiming Sensitivity. Still working on a subtitle, but it's essentially what we discussed, how to sense and respond to uncertain terrain. I would love to do an interview again as the book is coming out. Would love that, and it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So how would our listeners get in touch with you? With me, you can follow me on LinkedIn, Ciela Hartanov, and also Hum Collective. And I have an Instagram, which is an occasional Instagram, at Ciela Rose. Thank you. For our listeners, for a daily leadership tidbit from our guests and from us, be sure to follow us at the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn and also on Twitter at IL underscore Institute. Thank you for listening. Please like us, share us. Most of all, put in action recommendations that you hear during the podcast. Mm -hmm.